Welcome to episode number 175 of CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman, and you know, in technology, communication seems, well, seems really tough sometimes. And today we're going to be talking about writing without bullshit. I'm talking with Josh Burnoff, who was one of the top industry analysts in the world working at Forrester Research before he left. And I should say he, he wrote uh, best-selling books. So he left Forrester Research, and he recently published a book called Without Bullshit, or his company is Without Bullshit, and the book is Writing Without Bullshit. And so today, we are going to be talking about writing and communication without bullshit. Josh Burnoff, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great. It's great to be on the program here. Hey, thank you so much. So, Josh, uh, tell us about your background, and most importantly, tell us about your new book. Okay. Uh, so, I spent 14 years in the startup scene here uh, in Boston, um, and after that, I joined Forrester Research uh, 20 years ago and was an analyst there for uh, for 20 years. And what a great place that was to be to learn about uh, how to really understand what was going on in the technology world, how to analyze things with an incisive and unbiased perspective. Uh, and also, I, as I got to the end of that time, I realized that not only had I accomplished most of what I'd set out to do, including writing some books, as you mentioned, um, I said, I need to do something different. And I looked around me and realized that everywhere in corporate America, uh, in press releases, in the way people communicate in email, that we are surrounded by this tide of bullshit, of meaningless communication, and that is, there's so much of it we don't even realize that it's happening. So I decided to set my goal after I left Forrester to be to uh, rid the world of bullshit or at least explain how to communicate appropriately without bullshit, um, and that was the origin of the book. Uh, you said it was published. It will actually be coming out in September, but uh, there's a, uh, I have the pre-release version right here, Writing Without Bullshit, and that'll be coming out from Harper Business in September of this year. So Josh, I guess if we get right to the heart of the matter, what do we, what do you mean by bullshit in, in this context? Writing, what is writing with bullshit? Well, uh, obviously people have a colloquial perspective on what bullshit means. There was actually a guy named uh, Harry Frankfurt, a philosopher who wrote a, a little book called On Bullshit, where he tried to define it. But my definition is very precise. Bullshit is the opposite of meaning. So if you look at a piece of communication, say a press release, everything that actually means something is content. And everything else, the jargon, the passive voice evasions, all of the buzzwords, the weasel words, the superlatives that don't mean anything, all of that is just meaningless blather. That's what I mean by bullshit. And when I talk about writing without bullshit, what I basically mean is we're in a world now where people read everything on a screen, on a computer screen, on a mobile phone screen. They're surrounded with information at all times. And unless your communication, your email, your press release, unless what you write is extremely pointed, gets to the point quickly, and spends every bit of word that you, all the words that you've got explaining something with meaning, then you're wasting your effort. 
So we're going to have to, un you're giving us a lot of information and we'll need to unpack it. But you said one thing, you, you spoke about weasel words. Mm -hmm. So what do you mean by that? What is that? Well, uh, weasel words are words that appear to intensify communication, but actually don't have a meaning. So let's just say, for example, that I were to say CXO Talk is an excellent program. Okay, well, that's, that's a statement. You can agree with it or disagree with it. Now, I'm going to say CXO, CXO Talk is a very extremely excellent program. It sounds as if I am intensifying what I'm saying, but in fact, because there's no metric associated with that, it's actually weaker. And if you read a press release, it's things are always deeply uh, uh, improved or uh, you know vastly better than they were before, or uh, you know the, you know really excellent. Uh, you know people are very concerned, and these words like very and deeply, words like billions. Uh, uh, lots of adverbs and adjectives don't actually have any meaning. And I call them weasel words because uh, people use them to try and evade precision in what they're doing. Um, just one other example here. Um, people don't like to make definitive statements like uh, uh, developers uh, prefer to have independence. So they say things like most developers usually and typically prefer to have independence. And by doing that, you have qualified the statement to the point where it's meaningless. And those exceptions, while they may make you feel better by covering your ass, don't actually communicate anything. Well, isn't there, when you, t when you use superlatives, isn't there an emotional communication that you're making with the person who's listening? Uh, you, you might think so. But one superlative might do that for you. 26 has exactly the opposite effect. And when you read a press release and it's just one superlative after another, you just think it's bullshit. I, I, a great example, uh, which I took apart on my blog, was uh, the statement that Chipotle made after they had had the incidents of food poisoning at their restaurants. And uh, it was full of these heartfelt adjectives about what they were going to do. But the more you read about how they were going with the most stringent program in the industry and how deeply they were concerned, the more you said, oh, they're just making it up. Uh, I can't believe anything these guys say. But what happens, you know, it's, it's all nice what you're saying, but there are, in, in our world, there are lots of gray areas and few absolutes. And so when you give the example of qualifying instead of making an absolute statement say well most or typically uh isn't that a reflection of of reality and so how do you deal with that how do you deal with that reality so you can't get rid of every qualifier that's just the nature of things but my recommendation in the book is that when you see these weasel words in what you've written you have to go back and create precision you can do it by putting in a statistic instead of saying uh, de uh, most developers prefer independence. Maybe you find out that in a survey that 78% of them do. Uh, you can qualify things with some precision. You can say the older a developer is, the more likely it is that they are to prefer independence. 
or you can say people in the financial services industry uh, uh, believe X or believe Y. Um, it's these these vague qualifications and not just one or two, but the piling up of them that results in, uh, in vague communications that doesn't have a precise meaning. Now, I understand that precision is not possible at all times, but you, you pile this stuff up, you end up with things that are just meaningless. So is, the, so is a lack of precision the key issue or, or one of the key issues here? I would say that there are a whole lot of key issues. My, my book has got 25 chapters in it, and each chapter is very short. And that's because this is a problem that's very complex that's made up of a bunch of simple pieces. So there's three things that I would say contribute to bullshit in writing. And if you remove them, you're much better. The weasel words, which I talked about, passive voice, which hides who's responsible for things, um, and then jargon, which makes it difficult for normal humans to understand what you're saying. But beyond that, people should have a focus on writing as short as possible. They need to front load things so that the first thing that you see has the answer in it instead of slowly getting in, getting to the point. Um, they need to use graphics appropriately. They need to use statistics appropriately. They need to add structure like bullets and, and subheads to make things more skimmable. All of these things taken together will increase the meaning of a piece of prose, even as you reduce the amount of words that it takes up. One, one of the uh, challenges I know, I, I speak with a lot of enterprise software companies, and it seems that universally they suffer from these three points that you're making. But in addition, they're uh, watching each other. And so, for example, if you look at many ERP companies, the marketing messages that they put out are more or less carbon copies, roughly, of each other. And there's very little differentiation. And so, so what's your take or your analysis on that kind of situation? Well, I, what you're describing is not a failure of communication, but a failure of product. So if your product's the same as everybody else's, uh, then you're going to have a problem describing it as being better because it actually is the same as everybody else's. What's interesting is in these technology markets, what happens when there's a disruption? The disruption usually is because something very simple happens or is, uh, becomes possible, and then you suddenly realize that that all of that uh, buzzword compliant, uh, you know, everybody the same as everybody else stuff, they were all competing in the wrong market. So when when an Uber comes along, it's very simple to describe. You just go on this app and you push a button and then a car arrives and it could be anyone driving it, but you know he's okay because he's got a rating from other people. That's extremely easy to describe. And uh, the problem uh, was with the taxi industry, not with the way the taxi industry described itself. Uh, uh, if you look at companies that are powerful and direct, companies like Google, and Apple, they communicate in powerful and direct ways that anybody can read and say, oh, okay, I understand what these guys are doing. And I know that you have analyzed those communications. So can you give us an example of how a company like Amazon or Google communicates in a direct way? And what are the takeaways for us so that we can learn from them? So I, I love, for example, looking at uh, mission statements and purpose statements. 
you go and look at how a company describes themselves. Um, and if you look at Google's mission statement, they say that they're there to make all of the world's information universally uh, accessible. Um, and that's, anyone can understand that. And that's, that's extremely simple and powerful way to talk. And no one would say, oh, Google, they're not a very sophisticated company. The sophistication is in how they do it, not in how they describe it. Um, another masterpiece of this clear communication was uh, Tim Cook's statement about uh, not wanting to crack the iPhone uh, on behalf of the Justice Department. Now, that's a very complex issue because they're trying to explain that, yeah, in this one case, you might, might make sense, but they don't want to create a precedent to have a back door. And then if there is a back door, you know, nasty people will eventually get to it. And yet Tim Cook took that very convoluted situation and described it in powerful, simple terms, even though what he was fighting was the perception that Apple is on the side of terrorists. Now, you mentioned Amazon. Uh, Amazon uh, is, uh, they're certainly they're capable of clear communication when they need to, but not these, these companies are often at their worst when the chips are down. And if you look, for example, at Amazon's response to the New York Times article that described their workplace as being sort of a hellhole of, uh, that, that ground people into dust, uh, his response was full of non-statements and weasel words and generalities. And the reason is because he didn't really want to get into it because there's obviously an element of truth to what the New York Times had found out. Uh, Shelley Lucas makes the comment on Twitter. She links all of this into trust. And I think that trust is such a key issue. So can you connect this, link this back to trust for us, all of this? Uh, uh, yes, of course I can. That's, uh, that's central here. It's interesting that, uh, that uh, they bring that up because it's, uh, it's not something, a point that I've made explicitly in the book. But uh, I think that when someone makes a, a statement that is, has a high density of meaning, uh, to you when when they say something that you can evaluate the truth of it like you know google says its pages will load instantly well we all use google we can say do they yeah i guess they do wow i guess i can trust them at least insofar as that statement goes uh, the more buzzwords and qualifiers that you add into a statement the harder it is to trust that company and i want to point something out here um, a lot of people have criticized passive voice, but I go a little bit deeper. The reason that people write in the passive voice is because they don't want you to know who's doing something. So when they say something like, our software has been evaluated by experts and determined to be the most cost efficient, well, the question of who evaluated it and how did they determine it, that's all been pushed to the side. And as these passive voice sentences pile up in any uh, series of statements, somewhere in the back of your mind, you're thinking, oh, this is a liar I'm talking to here. They're not actually telling the truth. And the reason is you can't tell who's actually doing this stuff. So, again, it comes back down to precision and clarity. What happens if you want to have this precision, this clarity, and you have a message, but you don't have all the data and you want to get it out there. What do you, what do you do? And you don't want to use these weasel words. What do you do? Well, uh, 
there's always something you can say. You limit yourself to saying the things that you actually can say and stand behind. Um, and this is part of what I've seen. If you look at people who communicate clearly, like, uh, like the people at Virgin, for example, um, they make a simple series of statements about things that are true and they don't get into detail attempting to justify things that are bullshit. Uh, and that's, that's, I guess what I'd say. Uh, it's, it, I want to bring this down to a very personal level for the kind of people who listen to this uh, this broadcast here. Uh, think about your email inbox, okay? When you get a statement from a colleague or a subordinate where they're attempting to justify something that happened, but they're trying to, to soften it or misdirect you, it's full of these sorts of state deceptive statements, and it's really easy for the person on the other end who's reading it to say, oh, well, this person's not honest. I, you know, I can't trust them. It is much better, especially in a case where you have bad news to communicate, to say, listen, this is important. This happened. This is why it happened. This is what we're doing to fix it. Now the manager who gets that is like, okay, yeah, Bob made a mistake, but at least he owned up to the mistake. I can see what the solution is. And now my inbox is not full of this, this, uh, you know, self-serving crap that the other people are saying. So again, the power comes from pairing back to what you can actually prove or, or you can demonstrate. Is that an, another way of saying it? The same uh, I'd say the most important way to say it is to be direct. So, uh, I recommend strongly that people use words like I and we and you, not just in personal communication, but in things like articles and blog posts that they write. Um, imagine if uh, you wrote your press releases using we and you in it instead of this sort of made up third person way of doing things. And in fact, that's what Google does now is writes their press releases directly from the, uh, the management there. I, uh, so that's, that's really what I'm trying to get across is that bold, direct, front-loaded communication is how you stand out in the workplace um, and how the stuff that you write, when other people read it, they're going to say, ah, this person's different. This person is communicating in a direct way. I can trust this person. I am so refreshed. I'd like to work with someone like that. So again, being direct and being bold leads, leads uh, very clearly to increasing trust. Yes, that's exactly right. You have, you did a survey, you did some, you're an analyst, you've been doing research for, for decades, and, and you did some research about the level of frustration that readers have with communication, with poor communication. Yeah, that's right. Um, this is gonna be uh, coming out in a few months. Uh, it's called The State of Business Writing, um, and uh, there's some fascinating statistics in here. Uh, my favorite one is this. I asked people, so just, just so you know who we're talking about here, I surveyed uh, 547 people who classified themselves as business writers. So this is not just people who wrote as, as their work, but anyone who wrote at least two hours per week for work outside of email writing. So managers, uh, analysts, all sorts of, of people were in there. Uh, one question that I asked, the most interesting was, I said, uh, looking at everything that you read, uh, how would you 
describe the, uh, let me just see if I can get this right. How effective is the material that you read or write rated on a scale from one to 10? Um, and when I asked people about the material that they read, they rated the average effectiveness of what they read at a 5.4, which is pathetic, right in the middle. But it's fascinating to me that when I said, how would you rate the material that you write, they rate it at a 6.9. So it's, they're like the people in Lake Wobegon, right? All the children are above average. All the writers that I, that I uh, surveyed are clearer. And that persists when I ask people, what's the number one problem in the material that you write, uh, excuse me, the material that you read too long, 65% said too long. What percentage said that the stuff that they write is too long, 45%. Uh, very close on the heels of that, poorly organized. The material that I read is poorly organized, 65%. 16% said the material that they wrote was poorly organized. So, so I don't know who's creating all this crappy stuff that they're reading, but obviously the people who took the survey think it's not them. And that's actually the point here. And what's, what is the kind of lesson takeaway from that? Well, uh, I asked a lot of process questions. It's clear that people need to understand these problems. And when you look at the problems that other people have in the material that they write, excuse me, in the material that they read, those are the problems that you need to fix in your own writing, whether you recognize it or not. So that's the, the uh, one takeaway. Um, I also asked a bunch of process questions and a lot of people agreed with the statement that uh, they get ahead in their career uh, based on bold and clear writing. So they are believers in, uh, in what I'm saying. Now, I want to be clear, this is not an unbiased sample. These are people I found uh, through my blog and other places that are more likely to agree with me. But uh, when I asked people in particular about their, uh, their process, one thing that, that uh, people complained about was uh, revisions. So uh, when I said, do you have a process for uh, getting feedback and managing it appropriately, only 34% of the people agreed with that statement. So uh, one thing I've definitely seen is that uh, it's the revisions that come in on material that you write um, and then your ability to manage them. That's really where a lot of the bullshit creeps in is a lot of last minute comments from people that contradict each other, you end up throwing it all in there and then you end up with a result that's a lot crappier than it would have been otherwise. So you end up with kind of a jumble of perspectives, mm -hmm. but therefore having no clear point of view, not no direct point of view. That's exactly right. And in, in, uh, in the book, there's a, in addition to the specific advice about things like passive voice and writing shorter and using numbers appropriately, there's a section on process um, people don't understand how to prepare properly. This is something I very much learned as an analyst, uh, how to spend the first half of your time doing research, how to create a fat outline, which is sort of like a treatment for what you're going to write, which makes it much easier for reviewers to get an idea of what you're going to write even before you've written it. And then how to allow appropriate time for revisions and to keep control of the soul of what you've written, even as the revisions come in and deal with all of those different reviewers. So one of the key challenges that's facing many of the people who are in the audience today is their companies are undergoing some type of change, transformation in response to becoming digital. So we hear, we hear the terrible buzzword digital transformation, which has come to mean almost nothing. 
But whatever digital transformation means, we know that it involves change. And many innovative leaders are or want to be change agents. And of course, communication is a key part of that. And so what advice do you have to people who want to be a, a successful change agent from a communication standpoint? That's a fascinating question. I think uh, internal communication, especially around change, is a big challenge. Um, I have some great examples of how to do that really badly in the book. My favorite is uh, Stephen Elop's email, 1,100-word email. So Stephen Elop was the CEO of Nokia uh, and then was in charge of the division that included Nokia when Microsoft acquired them. And he sent this very long email around about all of the uh, uh, priorities that they were going to have. And about three-quarters of the way into the email, he said, oh, by the way, we're eliminating 12,500 positions. Holy crap. I mean, come on. <laughs> talk about burying the lead. Uh, I, when I talk about managers communicating with their staff, which I, I definitely uh, describe the best ways to do that in there, um, uh, the most important thing is to develop a regular cadence of communication so that when the email comes in, people aren't shocked. It's like, Oh, God, the boss sent an email. What's it about? No, you know, every month, every quarter, whatever the, the timing is, you want people to say, okay, there's the message, and uh, I'm going to see what's important. And uh, it is inevitable when a manager speaks to their employees that there will be buzzwords because every corporation has these buzzwords that they need to rally around. And if you don't use them, you get yourself uh, in trouble with the management. But if you keep that to a minimum, and you communicate in a more direct way, you know, here's the ch biggest challenge that we've got. Here are the milestones that we're trying to head toward. This is what Sally did over here, and that's why that's good. Uh, over here in this department, they're having a challenge, and this is why we're, we're going to solve that. That sort of direct, no-bullshit communication will go a long way toward getting the, uh, the staff that you've got uh, to actually understand the priorities and act on them. So Jill Rowley, who is one of the world's top experts on social selling, just commented on Twitter. She posted from your LinkedIn page, and your LinkedIn page says the following, your description. My name is Josh Burnoff, and I hate bullshit. After 40 years in academia and the corporate world, I've had my fill. So have you. So now I'm going to do something about it on my blog and in my upcoming book, etc., Etc. And so, what have you done there, and what can we learn? Well, I'm obviously not the only person who's capable of clear communication. On the other hand, um, if I don't exemplify this myself, well, then I'm in big trouble. I, I want to point out a few things. I use the word I, and I use the word you. Now, I, I, people have criticized me in the past for having a big ego, and they're probably right. But you know, the amount of, of ways that you use the word I is not necessarily related to your ego. On a page that's about me, I'm allowed to use the word I. Let's not fool anyone about who's speaking here. And I'm saying, you know, this is what I've done and I'm going to do it for you. I also use uh, clear and simple words and I speak directly to my audience, which is in that case, people reading the LinkedIn page and presumably people would be interested in uh, following my blog or reading my book. Every communication has an I and a you. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I recommend 
as a sort of rubric for doing this is what I call the Rome method, R-O-A-M. Four steps that you should do before you write anything significant to get yourself in the right frame of mind. The R is readers, who's your audience. The O is objective, what are you trying to do? Uh, what are you uh, trying, what is the change you're trying to make in the minds of the people who are reading? The A is action. What are they going to do as a result? Because when you read something and you say, well, okay, what am I supposed to do with that? That's a failure. And the M is impression, which doesn't start with M, I know, but I needed to make the acronym work. Um, the impression is, what will they think of me after that's done? And unless you have gone through that exercise of R-O-A-M for any piece of writing that you're doing, you really don't know who you're talking to. You don't know what you're trying to accomplish. And it's going to fail because it doesn't have a clear uh, sort of uh, perspective on what it's trying to do. We have uh, another comment or question from Arsalan Khan on Twitter. And he raises an interesting point. And he says, how do you strike the balance? Uh, he's talking now about IT people. But I think this is very highly generalizable. How do you strike the balance between being direct and just being rude, <laughs> right? If you're too direct and you push people off, there is no communication because they'll simply turn and walk away from you. Uh, that's absolutely true. So uh, I'm in favor of directness. I'm not in favor of rudeness. Um, I got a, a question after a webinar I did. Someone said, is please a weasel word? And I'm like, no, please is a wonderful word. It's not a weasel word. If you want someone to do something for you, the word please is extremely helpful. Um, and when you're going to be direct with someone, that doesn't mean you, you insult them personally. This is where you say, um, I read that code that you created. It sounds as if you put a lot of work into it. I think this is not going to accomplish the goal that we're trying to accomplish. So here are three reasons why I think it's fallen short. Let's look at this uh, metric here, which we can agree is good, and that will help us to determine what we need to do next. Now, that's very different from you're a stupid idiot and you're a failure, which is not going to get you what you want, but it's also not, you know, in the cloud-based environment in which we all work, uh, uh, approaches to quality must uh, obey the Six Sigma process, nor, right? I mean, let's get to what's actually happening. And I think um, uh, whether you're in the IT world, when you're communicating with people in person or virtually, you have to be polite, but you can't dance around the issues. I like that. Uh, be direct, but not rude. And boy, we see a lot of rudeness and online, a lot of uh, ad hominem attacks as well. We have another question from Shelley Lucas, who asks, will really good writers with clear original thinking and expression be devalued with AI and scaling content? I think the opposite is true. Um, let's, let's just take the uh, contradiction of that. Um, so if you, if you believe the opposite of that, what you're saying is, in a world in which AI uh, can create content, the way for human beings to stand out is because they do bullshit better. No, I'm not going to agree with that. No, uh, AI is capable of putting uh, uh, words together. It's capable of putting ideas together. It's capable of generating insights. That's all great. But 
uh, it is the human ability to see patterns that are not visible anywhere else that I think will continue to make humans stand apart. The other thing is that uh, humans will be making the decisions. So if I'm communicating with you, Michael, and I'm trying to get something across, my ability to persuade you is likely to be better as a result of uh, being direct, being human, using appropriate vocabulary, not dancing around things, not using meaningless jargon, and so on. So um, I, I don't know. Maybe there will come a time when AI can write better than me, but uh, I don't expect that to happen anytime soon. So let's talk a little bit about the analyst business because you were an industry analyst for 20 years. You were one of the top analysts at Forrester Research. And just in general, and, and communication, of course, for an analyst, that's an analyst's stock and trade, really. Mm -hmm. So uh, what, are, what are the changes that you're seeing, having worked for a large analyst firm and now being an independent on your own uh, out of the analyst business? What are the changes and what's going on in the analyst industry that you have observed? So uh, let me start by talking about what I think the analyst business does well. And I want to be clear, there's no way I could be in the position I'm in now without having been uh, going through the Forrester research process and really having learned a lot of the things that I'm now sharing. Uh, the best parts of that are uh, complete uh, emphasis on facts, uh, objectivity is the watchword of the analyst. They, you may, they may get it wrong, but you can be certain that they haven't been bought by somebody. Um, uh, and expressing it in writing, it does, if you're an analyst, it doesn't count unless you've writ written it in a report. And I think that that's, that's uh, positive. And those reports have gotten shorter over the years as people have become uh, more impatient. So those, those are all positives. The challenges have to do with the industry. So the first challenge, and believe me, I lived through this over the last 20 years, uh, has to do with how people get information. So if you want to find information, if you want an answer to a question, the obvious thing you do is you go to Google and you search on it. And the quality of the answers that you get back there uh, is highly variable. But uh, a, an analyst company, a research company, is basically saying, hey, we have better researched, more high quality answers than you'll get if you just go look on the internet. And that uh, is, has been a real challenge, I think, for the industry as a whole, is to continue to communicate that they have that value. Uh, the, the part of the way that they react to that is to provide more personal interaction between analysts and vendors, between analysts and clients, and it is that give and take, I think, which is difficult to replace. Certainly, you can't get that from, uh, from a search engine. The other really challenging element is that, that it is now possible for smart people to make a living in various ways without being part of a research company. Um, and if you look at uh, people like Jeremiah Aoyang and Charlene Lee, former colleagues of mine, um, who have done very well on their own, there's there's a uh, there's a definite path here for star analysts to go on and excel on their own, and that ability to retain talent is a challenge uh, here in Massachusetts. There's non-compete agreements which can help with that, but in California, uh, the talent holding on to that sort of talent can be difficult for for a research company. 
One of the challenges that many analyst firms have faced is the analyst firm wants to retain the brand equity in the name, but now there are top analysts who, many top analysts, who are able to establish their own very strong brand identity. And that deval from the analyst firm point of view, that devalues their, their own brand and, and pulls the center of gravity away from them. Uh it's a it's a problem in any industry with stars in it, and uh, part of I said part of the value that that the research companies create is the relationships between the individual analysts and uh, and the clients and the vendors. Well, those relationships are relationships that individuals have, and you can't say, oh yeah, you know, so and so is a, a really valuable and important asset to a gardener, and then. Uh, when they leave, say, oh, no, 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 we can just substitute somebody else in there. They're all generic. <laughs> you you can't have it both ways. Uh, I, I'll tell you an interesting story. So um, when I was writing the book, I got to this point that I got to in many things that I've written where I, I would normally go to Forrester's uh, uh, very extensive survey research group and say, all right, well, what do we have on... Uh, the amount of time that people spend on mobile or what do we have on the way that people do mobile commerce? And that's very expensive, what a company like Forrester does to collect that data, but it's extremely valuable in backing up uh, a, a point that you're making. And here I was out on my own and I was like, okay, what am I going to do? I don't have any data. So I said, well, I wonder how hard this would be. And so I started a survey. I I wrote it myself because I know how to write surveys from having worked for a research company. I fielded it to people on my blog. That wasn't sufficient. Uh, I bought some advertising on Twitter and uh, got some people to click through that way. I got some other people to post about it. And over a period of three months, I got over 700 people to respond, of which 547 met, met my criteria. And then in terms of analyzing it, you know, I had SurveyMonkey and I could uh, put things into spreadsheets and analyze them. So, so I sort of, uh, you know, using very inexpensive tools, I was able to get enough data to actually draw some conclusions. Now, is that a statistically valid sample the way that, that Forrester's Technographics is? Absolutely not. But I got data. And this is part of the challenge is that with the tools that are available now, uh, people can get uh, stuff is not as high quality as what they can get from uh, from quality research, but they can make a substitution like that. The quality is good enough for their purposes, in other words. Well, I think when I tell you that that 65% uh, of the people I surveyed said that the material that they read is too long, you say, oh, I think there's something to that. Now, if I did a statistically accurate survey of all business people who read things, that would cost, you know, $15,000. And maybe I'd find out that it's at 69%. But intuitively, you say, all right, there's something something to that. And the fact that everyone thinks they write better than the stuff that they read, I think that's a real effect that would not be any different if you had a professional sample going on there. Josh, we have about five minutes left. And so in this final time, I know we've, we've covered this, but can you summarize your advice for 
powerful communication and especially powerful communications for marketing purposes because that's what a lot of people care about is they want to sell more. So please share your the kind of summation of your your wisdom on this topic. So if you're going to change things, there has to be a reason to change it. And here is your reason from me. The reason is that your audience is reading what you write on a screen, probably a smartphone screen or a computer screen or a tablet. And as a result, they have much less ability to concentrate. And your messages have to be extremely powerful and efficient to punch through that. The, the bold, powerful communication that succeeds there is going to be short. It's going to be front-loaded. That is, the titles and the first few sentences will carry much of what you're trying to communicate. It's going to be direct. You're going to use a first person, I or we, speaking to you, and it will eliminate those elements of bullshit that I described, the, uh, the passive voice, the weasel words, the jargon. Just cut through all of that crap and speak in a very direct way. And when you look at the communication that hits its target, it tends to be written that way. So people should recognize they need to write differently to succeed in that online environment and try and strip down and be more direct with their communication to do that. And that very much is what I've dedicated the last year to. A million people have now read my blog within the first 12 months, and that's all because it's dedicated to that kind of direct, no bullshit communication. So then, so a million people have read your blog in the last month. And what takeaways do you have for, for all of us who want our blog posts to be read widely and who want Twitter followers and so on? Okay, so let me just correct what you said. It was a million people within the last 12 months. If I get a million a month, I'm doing uh, much better, which I'm not quite there yet. It's more like 200,000 a month at this point. But, but uh, for people who want to succeed with a blog, um, you want to, I mean, I have a lot of advice on how to write blog posts. The headline has to be direct. Forget SEO. Write something that says something that people want to read. The first few sentences should say what's in the blog post because that's what appears in Google search results. It's what appears in the, when somebody posted on Facebook. Um, and then uh, you want to use graphics and subheads to make as direct a point as you, as you possibly can. Um, uh, and uh, I guess the last thing I would say, um, and this is, it's interesting, if you look at my posts that have been most successful, the one that by far was more successful than any others was called uh, 10 Top Writing Tips and the Psychology Behind Them. And that uh, was successful because it's a really useful, compact piece of information. All the rest of the ones that were really popular were uh, based on on news events. So... When you read something that's happening in the world uh, and you say, oh, I have something to say about that, write about it immediately. And then you will rank higher on search results and people will share it. Um, luckily for me, writing about communicating without bullshit, there's this thing going on called the 2016 presidential election. There is so much bullshit involved in politics. And so there's always opportunities for me to have commentary about how people communicate and what they're really trying to say. Where's the source of your traffic? Is the source of your traffic from word of mouth or is it from search engines? Um, some of it is from search engines. Um, for example, uh, uh, that 
top writing tips post is now number three on Google for writing tips. Um, and that generates two to 300 views per day at this point. Um, the piece I wrote recently about the worst slides in Mary Meeker's Internet Trends presentation, that's had about a week's worth of continued visibility, and I really think it must be because people are searching on uh, Mary Meeker worst and finding my stuff. Uh, but uh, while that helps, a lot of it comes from word of mouth, uh, and in particular from viral spread on Facebook and uh, Twitter and LinkedIn to a lesser extent, but very much on Facebook. So uh, when I have a lot of traffic, it's usually a result of people sharing things on Facebook. Okay, well, we're just about out of time. This has been a very interesting conversation. We've been talking with Josh Burnoff, who was one of the top industry analysts, technology analysts in the world. And he left, and he recently wrote a book called Writing without bullshit. Josh, thank you very much for being with, here, being with us here today. Thanks. It's been great to be here. And if people want to follow what I'm doing, go to withoutbullshit.com. Every day, every weekday, I post on there and uh, you'll see all of, all of my tips and, uh, and research and analysis right there. And everyone, you have been watching episode number 175 of CXO Talk. Come back again next week and Thanks a lot. Have a great weekend, everybody. Bye-bye.